Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. Today we will be talking about automation in language services companies. To talk to me about this important topic, I have invited John Moran from Transpiral based in Ireland to share his thoughts and ideas. John Moran studied computer science, linguistics and German at Trinity College Dublin in the 1990s and following his graduation he taught technical German and German translation at Trinity College Dublin which led him into working in the translation business. Following that, he worked as a software developer in Germany and later ran Transpiral as a specialized language services vendor, providing French and German to English translation services to global multi-language vendors or MLVs for several years to focus on research and machine translation, working with the Center for Next Generation Localization in Dublin, which is now called ADAPT Center. This allowed John to use his programming experience to develop software in the translation industry Working with the machine translation team for WeLocalize, which is a large American LSP, John carried out large-scale productivity tests on machine translation using an adapted open-source CAT tool, and he has published that work. Having restarted Transpiral in 2013 as an Irish limited company, he has expanded their language offering to multiple languages into English, English to German, and German and English to Irish translation pairs. He works with a distributed team from Germany and Ireland. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, John. Thank you, Sultan. It's, a, it's an honor to be asked. Appreciate it. Uh, John, give me some background and introduce yourself to people listening about yourself and the company. Sure, sure. So um, I guess um, my background is uh, both on the, the IT side, so mainly software development, and also on the linguistic side. So um, I... I have made a living in the past as a German to English translator. Um, I don't translate a lot these days unless they're, you know, short marketing texts. Um, but I do spend about a third of my time reviewing German to English. Um, a lot of the time, uh, you know, reviewing texts that were originally machine translated and then post-edited. Um, so I have to make sure that the work that we send to our customers um, is 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 uh acceptable <laughs> right uh so yeah so i mean that that's pretty much and i run a translation agency so so we we uh we're we could be characterized as a, a specialized language vendor um which is kind of a an industry insider way of saying that many of our customers are um mlvs so multi-language vendors in other words much larger agencies that have you know teams of salespeople, and um, we're, we're a small company. We have um, a staff of five, plus plus our freelancers. So our staff are uh, mostly uh, project managers, and um, yeah, we, we we specialize in German to English. So we we do German to English, usually high volume projects if we can. It's you know it's how we add uh, value. So we've had projects where we've had you know between thirty and seventy translators working in parallel. Um, which is an interesting war story, you know, going from from the lower number to the higher number. <laughs> right. right. Uh, um, and and we also do Irish, um, and we can talk a bit about how how I got into Irish, 
um, a few years ago. Uh, it's a different market. We rarely have more than three or four translators working in parallel, uh, but we always have translators working for Irish. So uh, it's a it's a language that um, I'm Irish, so I have you know emotional feelings about, but also. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a small small side of the business. It's not what we do mainly. Mo mostly, it's German English um, or other language pairs. We can talk a bit about that. But um, yeah, so that that just gives you a, a rough idea. Um, so and also, I should say that our Irish work is a mixture of MLB customers and direct customers. So most of our direct customer work tends to be either Irish or just sort of sporadic languages that that our direct customers send us. Quite interesting. How did you decide to enter this interest, uh, this industry? I, I know you have a story to share. Was it by choice or accident? How, how did that happen? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you've read Renato Beninato's uh, book, um, The General Theory of Translation Agencies, I think. Um, quite translation dumb. Company, yeah. Yeah, the translation company, it's yellow. I have it there somewhere. Um, in it, uh, Renato comments that nearly everyone he meets fell into the translation industry by accident. That's true. So, <laughs> um, I, I know that, you know, I, I, I've somebody asked me that question before and I had to think about it. I think the first time that I um, that I fell into it. So the thing that really triggered it was I was um, I graduated and one of I, I did quite well. So I graduated top of my year in German, which was a minor subject with my degree in computer science. But nonetheless, we did the same exams as the Germanic studies students who were just studying German um, and uh, other Germanic languages. So um, my German was pretty decent um, when I left college and I was walking up the stairs of the arts block in Trinity College Dublin, where where I, where I had studied. I was a postgrad student at that point, and one of my lecturers, Dr. Gilbert Carr, stopped me on the stairs and said, would you like to teach the class in technical translation um, that you took, that I had taken with him the year before, because right. um, I had really enjoyed the class, and I think he, he saw that. So I ended up teaching this class in technical translation, and also it was technical and semi-literary translation was the title. Um, and then... Um, so I was, ironically, I think a lot of people end up lecturing in translation after working as a translator for years. For me, it was the other way around. This was my first sort of paid gig. Um, it was just a part-time lecturing position. But on the back of that, a company called Draytech, who no longer exist, um, a subsidiary of uh, of um, Commerzbank, which is a German bank, who also no, sorry, of Dresdner Bank, uh, which is now Commerzbank, uh, they contacted the Germanic Studies Department in Trinity and asked them if they knew anybody that knew how to translate uh, IT documentation from German to English. They put me in touch with them. Um, I didn't know how much to charge per word. I had no idea that there was such a thing as the translation industry. So I took an exam that I had taken and the amount of time that we had for the exam, we had an hour to translate something like 200 words. I based it on 500 euros a day because I'd been paid that much to do a, a programming training course the same week. And I ended up with a, a word price of about 40 cents per word. And <laughs> that's what I charged for a couple of years to this customer who, um, so it was a pretty decent, I think we can all agree that's it would be great if we could get you know those prices normally these days. But the the outcome of that was because I was charging um, pretty pretty decent rates per word, I was able to find uh, a reviewer to work with in Dublin. I could easily afford him. And uh, so I did the translations myself at the start. Um, the customer was happy, um, 
but I wasn't really happy with it. I felt I was, you know, uh, making mistakes. And then I, I put the reviewer in the process and I really learned a lot from the feedback I got from him. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, the customer needed a lot more work than I could possibly do. I, I had other commitments. I was teaching, I was working on a PhD. So I uh, hired a few translators and I set up a website, transpiral.com. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, the rest is sort of history. I, I, I did that. I, 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 we only had that one customer, Draytech, for about two years. And then Lionbridge came on board and I grew with Lionbridge. So um, one of their project managers, Ingo Schumann, who's no longer with Lionbridge, um, told me that for, for a number of years, um, that that we were working together, we were Transpiral was by far Lionbridge's main supplier for German English uh, as an agency. Otherwise, they worked with a lot of translators, um, and and that's really part of the business model as a, as a specialized language vendor. Your your customers are always working directly with translators, but they might work with one or two agency vendors for bigger projects, and 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 that's where we like to fit in. It, very interesting, and, and I'm sure you have a lot of uh, stories to tell. Can you share some of your interesting stories about your experience in this industry? What were the things that stood out to you? Yeah, um, well, so I think one of the things that's a little bit in, unusual about me is that, or about Transpiral, is that at a certain point, so what happened was that uh, Lionbridge and Bound, um, one of our other customers, merged, and they closed down all of the offices in Germany. This is about 19, uh, sorry, about 2000, I think three, is that right? Or 2006. Anyway, so it was in the mid noughties. Um, and that left me with, you know, Lionbridge had been pretty much 90% of our sales. And I decided, okay, well, you know what? I have a computer science degree. I used to work as a programmer. I'm just going to go back and work as a programmer. So I did that. And I, 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 I worked as a programmer for a number of years, mostly for, um, for a subsidiary of Siemens, Nokia Siemens Networks. Um, and then I got a little bit bored of programming. Um, and I thought, you know what would be really cool would be to combine what I've learned as a programmer uh, with translation. So I decided to go back to college, to, to go back to Trinity College. Um, and uh, I was a PhD student this time in computer science. And um, I did... Um, uh, some research which has been published. I can send you the links after if you want, if you have show notes, um, on the topic of measuring translator productivity. Um, so, what I did was I downloaded the source code for an open an open source cat tool called Omega T, which is programmed in Java, which is my preferred language, right. programming language. And um, I added logging statements to the tool, and then uh, I also programmed a, re a replay function. Um, so you could replay what was happening in the cat tool. So let's say, for example, the translator was typing the target sentence and decided to hit the delete key five or six times. That would show up in the in the in the replayer. It would show in other words, it would show up in the logging. Um, but in a normal cat tool, you wouldn't know that a translator had been hitting the delete key. You just see the target sentence, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was basically kind of a tricked out you know, what we called an instrumented cat tool. Um, and uh, I, I demoed that to uh, an outstanding engineer called Dave Clark, who works for Be Localize. And I remember Dave saying uh, in the meeting that that fills the gap in our thinking in terms of post-editing pricing, because post-editing pricing really boils down to the question, how much faster is the translator with machine translation, right? As opposed to translating from scratch. 
So we ended up doing, um, I think, if I'm not wrong, and I, somebody, I'm, I'd be happy if someone would tell me if I'm wrong. We did this work in 2013, and I think it's still the largest, or certainly one of the largest published productivity tests um, you know, at you know, in, in let's say in the public domain. Obviously, you know, companies do all sorts of internal research, but they don't necessarily publish um, at at conferences or you know online. So um, yeah, that was that was a really interesting year or two. I got to work with some really stellar um, people, Olga Bergovaya, who's um, well known at conferences. I saw her picture on the front page of Multilingual magazine recently. Right. Um, and um, uh, Lara Casanellis as well, uh, their, their MT program manager. So I got to work inside of a company that was not unlike Lionbridge, let's say. Yeah. Um, a let's say a global MLV, many of whom, many of whom, you know, many of the staff had worked at Lionbridge as well. So I got to, I got to see the inside of one of my former clients. And, and, and I, I have to say, it's, I remember driving to work uh just you know singing in the car i used to really enjoy it um and i and i learned a lot um about you know machine translation and how to manage projects with post editors um and i mean we can talk about that a little bit uh, further on in the in the podcast um because i think it is an, i think it is a question that that i mean it's it's a question that i still ask myself as a as an agency owner these days you know why is the industry so far behind in terms of supporting post editing in the tools when it could actually, you know, it, it, it's a it's a it's a problem that sort of should have been solved, um, in my opinion, in two thousand and thirteen. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and and uh, we I think we will touch uh, upon that and and one of the questions in our interview today. But let yeah. me get an overall overall uh, perspective of yours. Let's dive into our core topic. That is, uh, we cover topics that affect language industry providers. I, I think there is nobody who hasn't heard or been involved in automation in our industry in the past decade or so. So uh, give me your personal overview of what automation and uh, a language service provider looks like today or should look like. Uh, I mean, you can't cover all the angles, but whatever you can think of, please. Okay, okay. So, I mean, let's imagine the base case where you've got no automation. I mean, go right. back to 2000 and uh, when did I start out? In the 1999 or something, right? Um, uh, you know, when the Prince song came out. <laughs> um, uh, that was Trados 2.0, if I remember correctly. Um, I remember as a student, I got an email address and no one knew, no one had heard the phrase email before. Um, certainly no adult had. So I thought it was really cool that I had an email address, though my parents didn't. Um, you know, so, so I, I've seen the industry develop over the last, let's say, quarter of a century. Um, I think that if you, so, so, so in a sense, that's the base case, right? The base, right. You know, at some point, I mean, riding a horse is a technology, right? So, so that's that's my own personal sort of base case. Um, how has it developed over the years? Um, I think we still do largely rely on email. I mean, with the with the caveat that almost all customers have a portal of some kind. Um, it's either been bought or it's been built. In other words, some customers have their own bespoke portals and some customers uh, use, I don't know, Planet or XTRF or whatever they use. So we've seen certainly um, uh, automation in the sense that, um, you know, portals have become, I don't know if I could say more sophisticated, they've become more the norm, right? I mean, every, every single one of our agency customers' portals frustrates me 
in one way or another, right? I, you know, I, it's very hard for me as a programmer to look at a piece of software and think, you know, it's perfect. And um, but I've certainly seen portals where I, where I think to myself, yeah, this is actually really saving us a lot of time. So, I'll give you an example. As as an SLV, it's great for us to be able to just go to a portal, click on a button, and it does the invoicing for us. Um, you know. Ideally, if we can download some sort of CSV file so that we can mirror the information in our own system to make sure that we're paid properly, that's that's perfect too. Um, but certainly, I think um, I think automation in terms of billing has has be, is a trend over the last few years, uh, and it's one that we've tried to mirror within Transpiral. We have our own system that I I didn't program it myself, but I I designed it uh, to create you know the work orders for the translators. Um, we have our own sort of I would say. Um, fairly basic sort of sales process. Um, and um, so that's one kind of automation. Uh, then the other type of automation, and particularly the one that's interested me as a researcher or as, you know, as, as a writer, let's say, in terms of the papers, um, is, uh, you know, how do you translate more words per hour uh, without affecting quality, quality negatively? So uh, there are really three answers to that question. The first and most interesting one for me, not so much today, but maybe a few years ago, was um, the use of speech recognition software. Right. Um, so we, we work with a number of translators who were using Dragon Naturally Speaking, and I was really interested in that. And I, I've given a few talks at conferences, on, uh, particularly translator conferences, on that topic. Um, machine translation, of course, is fascinating. We've seen um, uh, really big jumps in terms of machine translation quality in the last five years, I would say. Um, DeepL stands out as a system that even I was at a uh, met up with some people privately two nights ago and, you know, we were talking about DeepL. Um, so it's a pretty well known system, even even outside of the industry. And uh, but and then there's the third option, which is predictive typing. Um, and and there are some some companies that have done some interesting work around that. There are lots of different types of predictive typing. You've got sentence completion predictive typing. You've got sort of clumps of words, uh, you know, where it just sort of randomly chooses to give you a few words as you're typing. Um, and you know that 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 th those are functions that are largely supported by the cat tools. Uh, sometimes it's just the predictive typing is just it finishes the word for you from the from the term base. So these are all these are all technologies that um, I was very interested in, and I don't do it anymore. But certainly, I spent some period of my life full time measuring the impact that these technologies had on professional translators, including myself. So uh, that's interesting. And and there's this notion, uh, John, that anything that can be repeated can also be automated. What are those things inside a, a language service provider? And is that even true? Can, can that happen? Uh, I think it depends. So, you know, it really depends on the budget. If we've got, right. um, you know, if we've got a large project with lots of words coming through per week, um, then obviously we're more inclined to want to spend programmer time, which is, we have three programmers in the business including myself, but I prefer not to program. I find it very difficult to think in terms of being a programmer and, and, and managing a business. Um, but we, we have, you know, we have programmers um, in India that, that two programmers we work with in India, we have uh, our production manager used to be a programmer and I also used to be a programmer. So we do tend to look at, you know, how to solve problems from a technical perspective, but we do have to ask ourselves the question, is it really worthwhile doing this? I mean, you have to ask yourself also with any kind of project, is it worth taking on the project at all? Or once you've done it for a few months, you realize you're not making enough money. Maybe you need to tell the customer that, 
you know, they need to find another solution. Um, I think that where we do see um, automation, if, in, ter in terms of trends, I would say uh, we're getting a lot of value at the moment from a system called Be Lazy. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Be Lazy. It's um, Ishvan Lagel's uh, baby, I suppose. He started the company. He was Ishvan was, I'm sure you know the um, the, the CEO of um, Kilgray, who are now MemoQ. Right. And um, yeah, so so what Be Lazy does is it helps you sort of drill down. Well, actually, what it really does is it connects to various, um, let's call them ERP systems, sort of management systems within large agencies uh, or some of the um, uh, ERP systems that you can buy, like Planet or XCRF. Um, I think he was at the Planet conference yesterday. <laughs> um, so uh that helps us uh, manage uh, projects where we don't have minimum charges. So for us, minimum charges are a big a big factor because we're an SLV. We're, we're working with MLVs and of course, they're selling project, you know, they're selling large accounts to large customers, which sometimes come with the requirement from the customer not to charge minimum prices for small projects. And um, so where you where you don't have minimum price, a minimum price, if you've got, I don't know, 10 words charged at 10 moon dollar cents. So moon dollar cents are a fictional currency. Yeah, a lunar currency, lest anyone accuse me of. <laughs> uh, but it's a good it's a good mechanism for talking about, you know, economics. So so if you're if you're selling, you know, 10 words at 10 moon dollar cents, then you're you've got one moon dollar. Uh, if you have to create a purchase order for a cost for, for what we call a work order for a translator and you have to issue an invoice to a customer, you, you're going to spend 15 minutes doing that. So you're, you're earning, you know, no money, basically you're losing money. So you have to automate. If you don't automate, then there's no point in taking on, on the account. And I think we're seeing more of that happening. Um, the automation of, of small handoffs with large handoffs. We had a 20,000 word handoff 10 minutes before this call. I'm more than happy to send an email. <laughs> So, so the, okay, yeah. I, I see your point. You you want to automate things where, um, you know, there's no value in assigning an actual human to to process it when it can automatically be processed by a computer processor. Correct. Though, so, of course, the only the, the human touch point is the translator. Absolutely. Um, I, now, I will say that that's the ideal situation, but the reality is that you know, at least a couple of times a week, we get emails from a project manager in uh, South America to say, you know these five sentences are three hours overdue um, because we have same day deliveries. And, you know, we we manage that as best we can. Um, so so it's not fair, to, it, it's not true to say that in the case of that particular account that the um, that everything is automated. We do have some accounts where I honestly don't even think about it, you know, from one month to the next because everything is smooth and has been smooth for years. Um, I'd love to have more of those. <laughs> John, let's go through the processes and, and drill a little bit deeper. The core of an LSP production system, how many of those processes have already been automated? And and you just mentioned Be Lazy and Ishvan's project. Uh, how many or which ones remain unexplored and should be automated? Yeah, I mean, I had a very interesting conversation a few years ago with 
um, Henry Dotter uh, from Prose. I posted a, um, a message on the Prose board uh, trying to elicit some idea, some feedback from translators. And unfortunately, I must have caught somebody on a wrong day because I just got the response. Oh, it's all these IT people trying to take our jobs or, you know, <laughs> um, it was a lady that um, I then realized had a history of, of, you know, being a bit histrionic. But anyway, I posted this, this it was just a one sentence um, question to say, hey, translators, would you guys be interested in this kind of software? And uh, Henry contacted me on the back of it. But I do feel, I mean, I, I never got around to implementing it, but I do feel that um, a lot of time is wasted managing capacity. Um, you know, if we look, if I look at across our MLV customers, we get emails all the time telling us, you know, are you taking Easter holidays? Are you taking Christmas holidays? The answer is no and no, because we have both Christian and Muslim and Orthodox Christian people working in the business and we're, we're quite careful to make sure that we have a 365, I won't say 24 hour, but we certainly have an 18 hour coverage. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, agencies spend more time than necessary managing capacity. I think if translators were, for example, if they were to use the calendar function on pros.com more actively or everyone decided to use Google Calendar um, I, I just feel that that's, a, that's an area that um, PMs spend too much time on. Now, it's not that simple because, I mean, if we have a project with, let's say, 70 translators working in parallel, then yes, we're really interested in knowing what their capacity is on a day-to-day -day basis. But when that project is finished, we don't care what their capacity is, right? So, right. Um, you know, uh, but I, I mean, that is the answer to your question. I think, I think, I mean, we're going to see increases in, 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 in the quality of machine translation, certainly even moving into other languages. I'm sure Arabic, I know Arabic is, you know, uh, machine translation quality is, is, is pretty low compared to, um, let's say, Italian right. from English. Um, so we'll see, we will see improvements there, but they're kind of, they're sort of obvious um, based on, you know, past performance. Um, I would say... In terms of workflow, I think capacity management is definitely the the area where PMs are spending a lot of unnecessary time, um, and that could definitely be improved somehow. And if anyone wants to talk about that, they're more than welcome to reach out to me. I, actually, I, I have a budget in mind for a project that 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 might help that. Yeah. So speaking of machine translation, you just brought up automation in the form of MT or um, the speech-to-text has been around and uh, to a good degree successful. How is the industry embracing this new area of productivity? Well, in terms of the language services industry and right. speech recognition, absolutely zero. <laughs> wow. I, can, I can honestly say that. Um, many translators are using dictation software, um, right. but if you talk to agency owners, they're barely aware of this fact. Um, now, uh, you have to be very careful with speech recognition because, as I said, I spend maybe a you know, quarter or a third of my time reviewing the work of German-English translators. These days, most of it's post-editing, but in the past, um, we worked with a number of translators who were using dictation software, and I used to give people training sessions on how to do that because I wanted to see them earning more money, even if it made no difference to my, my business. But you do have to be careful. I'll, I'll give you an example. We worked for a company, um, a German agency, we sent them a, a translation back, and um, much to my disgrace, I missed one of the, the errors. Um, and it was the word chemical uh, was mis mistranscribed as, oh, I can't remember, it was some sort of medical term. 
um, like pregnancy or something like that. Right. It, it was a word that sounded more like chemical and it, it totally changed the meaning of the text in a way that, generally speaking, mistakes in machine translation post-editing don't. I mean, most mistakes in, in machine translation post-editing are such that the style of the target text is a bit wooden. Um, sometimes You do have to be careful because you'll sometimes see semantic uh, reversal in the sense that the word no might be left out by the machine translation system. But in general, you won't see these kind of catastrophic dicto, er, what I call dicto er, er, errors um, as opposed to typos. So um, so that's, that's the speech side of things. Um, uh, in terms of machine translation, I mean, I think machine translation has, it, it, I think, translated in Italy, had a website a few years ago called The Big Wave, and it really is a big wave. Um, I, certainly in my own business, I see uh, post-editing requests for maybe 40% of the work that comes in, you know, when it might have been 5 or 10% three years ago. Um, we generally, with our MLV or with our agency customers, we try to be as transparent as possible. So we won't use machine translation if we're told not to, or uh, unless we've gotten you know written permission to do so, because you've got the problem of potential IP spillage. Unless you're using an internal system, and we don't actually have an internal system, because uh, quite frankly, it's very difficult to build an internal system that's as good as DeepL. So yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing a, a, a quite an increase in post editing, and we've done. Uh, you know, I mentioned actually the the project that we did that had seventy translators was actually for your last guest. It was for ULG. I don't think they'll mind me saying that. So. Um, I think, sorry, that, sorry, excuse me, that project was 70 translators, but it was translation from scratch because it was for a court case and we, we didn't want to take any risk with IP. Um, since then, we've done a number of big projects in the automotive space using machine translation. And I have a feeling that from now on, anytime we do a big project with more than 10 translators, it's going to be post-edited because frankly, um, it's just more, it's just more efficient. Um, now, in contrast to that, we also do Irish. And I would say twice a week, well, not twice a week, maybe twice a month, I send emails back to customers telling them that we simply don't do post-editing for Irish. Yes, Google provides output for Irish, um, but it's not good. The translators, generally speaking, will either refuse to work with it or um, they won't offer any kind of discount. So you're just taking a risk for no reason. Um, yeah, John, can you give me some examples of case st or case studies for successful implementation of automation strategies in, in the language services companies? Uh, you deal with larger MLVs, but also you have other peers who are in, within you know, the SLV sector. Uh, can you tell me how both of these have implemented automation successfully to their benefit? Well, I mean, going back to what I said before, I think that you know, automated billing is really what I see most of in terms of the automation on the, pa on the part of our customers. Um, I mean, it, it, I don't like to be negative, but I will say that, you know, I think that really one of the things that um, large MLVs need to think about is, okay, it's fantastic if you've got a really, really configurable, really um, like space age management system, but it does nothing if you've got, if you hire somebody who used to work in a bar two weeks ago and hasn't been given any training in how to use the system. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think that's probably if I, the one thing that I've seen throw up problems is project managers who haven't received the training in the system that that they need to receive to use to to use the software well. Now that said, most of the project managers we work with are very good. Yeah. Right. 
Um, but but of course, we've had a few war stories over the years. And I know I, I left a note for myself. That's one thing. But then the other thing that kind of frustrates me um, is that it's very rare for any of our agency customers to actually ask us, you know, what do you think of our software? You know, how do you think it could be improved? I mean, we are the users of the software, right? So, um, I mean, I had a I had a conversation with the CEO of probably the second largest agency in the world at a at a Slater conference in London a few years ago, and I offered my time as a you know as a as a software consultant uh, to try to help them with with the software that I knew was you know I, I, because I've used the software I know what the problem is basically the problem is that the logging is not getting shared with the with their um, with their customer support teams. So the, they're asking, you know, if you're asking for a screenshot of a piece of software, you shouldn't be. You should just be looking in the log file at the time that the project was done to see what the software is telling you, if you know, about the error that was thrown. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, you asked me for for successful. So the successful ones are the successful ones are the ones where, uh, you know, we get a handoff, we hand back smoothly. There's no, you know, there's no email exchange, and we can. You know, invoice using a click or two. I would say out of the 20 or so MLB customers we have, that describes maybe three of the systems. <laughs> this podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human in the loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. John, let's let's uh, shift gears here a little bit and put our flashlight on on end clients. Let's say if we're not yeah. dealing with MLVs, how do they perceive automation? I guess they wouldn't care about production of the translation if it meets their quality requirements. But do they care about automation in the business process, like project management? No. <laughs> I, in my experience, our direct customers care that we deliver the, the project on budget and on time, <laughs> and right. you know at the expected level of quality. What we do for that to happen doesn't make that much difference to us or to them. Um, now, we have we have a few private sector direct customers and we love them, um, but most of our direct customers tend to be government departments. Um, so I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you kind of a, an interesting story about how we got into Irish. Um, so I was, um, I, and that's, that's relevant because, um, you know, it'll explain to you how we have so many direct government customers. So we were, Transpiral specialized in German English, as I said, for Lionbridge. Then I closed the business and I reopened it in 2013 as a limited company, sort of, let's say more intentionally this time to, to grow as an agency. And the reason I reopened the business was I had met an, uh, a lady at a conference who um, was talking to somebody while I was having my lunch at the conference and I could hear that she was really selling more or less the same as what I had been selling in Transpiral, which was technical German English um, and financial. So um, I had a quick chat with her afterwards uh, about a presentation that Dion Wiggins from Asia Online had given. And uh, we exchanged business cards. I went home, I connected with her on LinkedIn and I completely forgot about the conversation. Six months later, I had my LinkedIn open and uh, I noticed a message to say that unfortunately the customer had gone into liquidation or that the agency, it was a, a company called eTeams in uh, on the west coast of Ireland, where I'm from. And there was a number for a liquidator, uh, a, a solicitor, a lawyer, 
not to confuse our American <laughs> <laughs> listeners. Um, and the, uh, I, so I, I, without thinking, and this, it, this cost me a PhD, so I really do think back to this moment in time. Um, I, I, I reached for my phone, rang the number and spoke to the liquidator. And he told me what money, they, you know, what they were looking for, what, what, what they had to sell. It was an XTRF system with, you know, data about customers and translators. There were translation memories, there were um, term bases for customers and, um, and an email address that came with it. So we negotiated a price and, um, and I bought the data of this company that had been in liquidation for over six months at this point. Um, and I didn't really think too much about it because I hadn't really thought about it in terms of selling translation services. I was more interested in the time at the time at, in the translation memory because I thought, well, I've just developed a state-of-the-art system to measure translation performance with machine translation. Wouldn't it be cool to build an MT engine and test against that? Um, and what was really funny, uh, the, the, I remember the conversation with the guy, you know, I'm from the West Coast of Ireland, so I, I understand the dialect pretty well. And um, he said that, you know, he's, a, he's just a West of Ireland solicitor. And last week he was dealing, he was running around chasing chickens and now he's selling translation memory, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is not a conversation I ever thought I'd have in my professional life. So, um, yeah, so, so that's how we got into Irish. Um, I, I had studied, or I, I had, I, there was a time in my life I was able to speak Irish pretty well because I, I spent a lot of time in the summers speaking it but um yeah so yeah that that's irish um irish is a it's a direct our direct customers are mostly government customers um, the problem with government customers is that legally they have to send out requests to multiple agencies and it, the pricing can get very competitive that's that's kind of the problem there are there are a couple of agencies that will just you know machine translation text with google translate you know pay for an hour of translator time and send it to the customer in the assumption that they can't speak Irish. Um, we don't do that. <laughs> so speaking of which, do clients see the advantage of automation and creating new and innovative solutions beyond the traditional model of translation and localization? For example, um, we see that web applications and mobile applications, uh, you know, they, they offer new areas of um, uh, how people communicate. For example, uh, if you were to, to look at, uh, you know, WhatsApp, um, it's an application, but do we as an industry plug into these new and innovative uh, solutions that are out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that the successful agencies are doing that. Um, but I, I, you know, large agencies, I think, I mean, as a general rule, the larger you are as an agency, the more services you provide, right? Right. Um, we tend to be quite specialized. We, we essentially what we see ourselves as is, is it, is it, um, a turnkey solution for large volume, I would say German to English, right? I mean, we get new customers for Irish every week at the moment because Irish this year was made into an, an official EU language. But we, I would put it this way. If I find a new customer for German to English, I'm happy. If I find a new customer for Irish, I'm not. If I find a new translator for Irish, I'm happy. It's actually very hard to find translators for Irish. So um, when I say translators, I mean you know, really good translators that can pass our QA. So um, I think that move, I think that we, we have seen ourselves provide, I mean, if you look at two years ago, I think we actually made more money from layout than we did from translation. Um, really? Yeah. So, 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 and, and machine translation has a, has a role to play there. So what we, what we're really good at is 
you can send us 10,000 pages of PDF and we'll turn that into a Word file starting the next day. And we'll be finished those 10,000 Word pages within a week. And if you keep sending us PDF files and we can scale up the project, then we can do about 100,000 pages. And I think that was our record in a week. Um, you know, we're working with, with a partner to do that, but it's a partner that, you know, we work with every day. And uh, what the effect that had, in particular on the one project, one automotive project I'm thinking about, was that the we actually ended up sending these Word files back to the customer who then created a, a Trados package. And because there was leverage within the Trados package, fuzzy matches, 100% matches, repetitions, internal repetitions, um, the layout cost was actually not just zero, they were making money by paying us to do layout, right? Because the alternative is to, is to take a PDF file and, I mean, you can try and ask the translator to create a table um, or a Visio diagram. <laughs> um, they'll just say no. Um, and we, you know, we made that mistake in the early days. Um, so, yeah, so I, I will, I would say that you know, we've 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 started to provide other services as well. We've done a little bit of transcription. It's not our main, our, you know, our main thing. We've done some AI um, annotation, uh, mostly for machine translation projects. We've done translation for machine translation projects. Actually, we've done a lot of that because um, a lot of the conferences I go or I go to are machine translation conferences. You know, based on my degree being computational linguistics. So, um, I, I mean, we are seeing more and more work outside of traditional, let's call it TEP. Um, I'm sure we will see more. Um, and I think that any agency would be well advised to keep an eye out for interesting services that can be provided instead of TEP. Because quite frankly, we've seen the value of TEP go down in terms of how much money we make per word as a result of machine translation getting better. So how about the translators and other stakeholders that produce the actual translation output? How does automation affect them? How are they responding to the automation movement? Well, it depends what you call automation. So I, I've never met a translator that didn't like to go to a, a customer portal, press a button, and the, you know, the invoice is created on 25 jobs. Yeah. So that, so that kind of automation is always popular. Um, right. uh, machine translation, I, I, I have had the honor of being asked to present at a number of machine uh, at a number of translator conferences over the last few years up to um, the the covid lockdown and I, I usually ask translators uh, um, do you prefer to work off in offline tools or online tools and I've only ever seen one translator who put his hand up and said I prefer to work in an online tool um, I think over the last few years I've seen translators sort of adapt to that um, but generally speaking they prefer to work in their you know, in MemoQ or in Trados or in Omega T or whatever the offline tool is that they prefer. Um, online tools can, you know, the problem with online tools is that if it's good, it's good. But if you're a translator and you've got 10 customers and one of them has a bad online tool, it's hard for the translator to remember which tool is the bad online tool or which customer is the bad online tool. And it might not be the customer's fault. It could just be that their own internet went on the blink for a few minutes and frustrated them. Yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah. you know, th this idea of always on, but I, you know, it's a trend. It's definitely, we're going to see it more and more. Um, I personally prefer to manage projects where a customer sends us a million words in a Trados package and we split it up and we send it as offline packages. 
So, uh, so John, let me interrupt you there for a moment. We, we, you just mentioned something really important that some tools uh, work very well for certain translators and some don't do that. Mm. You know, uh, it, so the current tools and technologies that support automation for language service providers, we just mentioned uh, which one, for example, supports MTPE, right? Please share your thoughts on how open source is propelling this movement. Do you see that that's contributing and, and solving this problem because that's community driven, right? Yeah, I mean, so that's a question that um, somewhere on on the internet there'll be a picture of me wearing a t-shirt with omega t on the front um, <laughs> somewhere in my in my in my um, in my bedroom um, the uh, I, I wore it to a memo queue conference actually <laughs> uh, I think Peter Reynolds took a picture of me for a time so so um, when I was working with we localize we we developed this version of omega t that measured translator productivity um, it we were use we actually I didn't. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but we were using a very similar method to the method that IBM had used in their TM2 tool. I won't go into the details of that, but what I will say is that one of the outcomes of the project, I was driving in my car with one of the uh, with a girl that I had studied computational linguistics with, uh, Jennifer Foster, who was a now a professor in DCU, and she told me, "Oh, I have a budget for uh, to invite presenters," and I said, "Oh, why?" She said, would you like to invite a presenter? And I said, oh, I'd love to invite this guy called Didier Briel, who was the product manager for Omega T. So we brought Didier over to Dublin um, set up a meeting with um, senior management with Relocalize. And I suggested that they integrate Omega T into GlobalSight, which I, I know that you have, um, you were on the GlobalSight board. Right. Uh, um, so I was pretty excited about that. I thought, ah, oh, great, you know, GlobalSight's open source and Omega T is open source, and this will just, you know, ignite the whole op op open source industry. Um, I was pretty familiar with the Okapi libraries and Eve Savarel's work, and um, you know, I, 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 I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of open source personally because the advantage of open source, if you're a programmer, is you can, you can adapt the software so it does what you want if you know how to program. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, I've been pretty excited. I was very excited about open source for a while, but you know, at a certain point, we localized, looked at the economics of global site and decided actually maybe they are not going to support it as much as before. Um, Omega T has still been doing very well, uh, and we still use Omega T uh, on projects. I think it's a, probably the most stable cat tool, and certainly one of the most. Um, it doesn't freeze. You know, all the cat tools will freeze if you put a large file into it. And um, Omega T is actually pretty performant. Um, so there's lots of advantages of open source. But in general, do I see a trend towards open source in the industry? I would say no. Um, I, I, we localized paid Didier for his work. Um, but I think that was the largest paid project he had for, for Omega T, he told me. Um, so it's hard to get companies, except for maybe Okapi, um, which is kind of a back-end processing framework, uh, you know, with filters for, for very good filters. For It's had millions of euros actually invested in, into the, the Microsoft Office file filters. With the exception of Okapi, I'm trying to think, is there any open source software other than, I don't know, maybe like FTP programs um, or Apache or something. Um, I, don't, I don't think that open source is dramatically trending up at the moment, but it's not you know nor is it history <laughs> so uh, let's let's uh, talk about something different uh, still uh, focusing on 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 translation companies uh, trying to somehow leverage automation right so 
When it comes to uh, quality pricing and vendor management of uh, machine translation and post editing, there is some sort of a disconnect between expectation and reality. There I'm is. interested to hear from you, uh, John, about finding that sweet spot that works for every language service provider or most of them. I mean, the problem is really pricing, you know, um, like we we are not a translator. I, I tend to think of us as a translator with a cape. In other right. words, you know, we can we can translate, you know, 70 we can translate the equivalent of what one trans of what 60 translators or 70 translators can translate, right? Um, but we still get, you know, emails all the time from our customers that say, what do you charge for post-editing? And I have no choice but to say, well, we offer a 20% discount. But that's not really true, right? I have to see the text. I have to see the machine translation output. Over the years, because I've dealt with it so much, I have a kind of a sixth sense. You know, I can look at it as a translator and say, okay, no, the quality is pretty good there. Yeah, we can offer that at that particular price. Um, it's, it's what I call, you know, sort of try and see economics, um, as opposed to the tools should simply be telling us how much faster we are with machine translation so that the pricing can become a science rather than an art. <laughs> so Absolutely. That's, that's, my, that's my pet peeve. And that's really what I was trying to say in the gala talk that you reached out to me afterwards about. Right. And and when it comes to uh, tools, um, whether it's open source or not, from inside the industry or from outside the industry, remember that Google and others are actually creating tools of their own that, that uh, supports uh, translation. Do you find it useful to automate the work that we do in our companies if we were to use something that, we, you know, that's not created for us? Or, or do you find it that uh, tools that are customized and created within our industry provides better value? Uh, I think tools that are provide, you know, that are public, you know, that are, that are from our industry provide better value. I mean, cat tools are the obvious thing, but um, uh, ERP systems, I think, I mean, there are, I know, I, I certainly know people who are using ERP systems that are more general, but that's mostly because they implemented them before XTRF and Plunet, et cetera, came along. Um, we, we did have an XTRF system, um, as I told you, because I bought one, but um, we ended up migrating to a system that I designed. Um, we use a, a Java development framework called Vadin, which is not developed for the translation industry. It's just a general programmer, sort of nerdy framework. Um, uh, but I mean, other than the, the sort of trivial caveat of things like FTP programs that every, you know, people use across all industries. Um, I, I think generally speaking, most of the software that we use is either developed by us for our own business or um, you know, there are things like cat tools or a lot of the time we're just logging into an online cat tool that a customer has provided, um, sometimes automatically, sometimes um, manually. Um, I don't think that there's a single answer to that question. <laughs> Understood. Now let's let's discuss what the users of uh, technologies uh, besides translators they think of the technology itself. I'm talking about people like project managers. If we were to automate many of the repetitive tasks like job creation, TM leveraging, file preparation, translator notification, and so on, what can they expect that their work will look like at the end once we have something like this implemented? Will they have work? Okay, well, that's a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so um, I remember talking to um, uh, uh, Michael M Michael Schneider. Um, uh, he's the owner of Beogesellschaft uh, für Sprachen und Technologie. I wrote that down earlier. Uh, I just called him Beo. Um, I remember him joking uh, at TCOM that I think I, I can't remember how many employees he has in his customer in his company, but probably 
in the three digits. Yeah, so it's quite a large German agency, uh, not as large as something like Limebridge, but certainly large by German standards. Um, I remember him joking that in his mind, he imagines Bayo just being one person and everything else is automated. Um, it's one way of thinking about things. Um, and I can see from his perspective, running a much bigger business than mine, um, how it makes sense to think in that sort of, um, I suppose, thought experiment way. Um, I think that most of the, the steps that you just mentioned there are done manually by us. And the reason is because even if you're doing, let's say you're doing project creation and you automatically create the project. Well, what happens if you're translating from German to English and some of the sentences are in English? Well, you don't right. want the translators to get paid for those sentences. You want to copy source to target and then lock the segments. That's a manual process. I mean, you can imagine it being automated because um, language uh, identification is, a, is pretty much a solved problem in computation linguistics, but that facility is in no CAT tool or system that I'm aware of. Um, hint, hint to any of the guys, any any CAT tool companies <laughs> out there. Um, there are lots of features of CAT tools uh, that, that are not implemented yet. Um, but yeah, so so I there are reasons why many of those tasks are manual in my business in in Transpiral. So I don't I don't necessarily see it, it doesn't bother me if 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 a project takes ten minutes. It, it doesn't bother me if a ten thousand word project takes ten, takes ten minutes to create the project. Let's put it that way. So this, speaking of Transpiral, it's it's an SLV, but it's it's also now dealing with Irish. Does automation work well for SLVs? I mean, and if you to put things into context, do large organizations with deep pockets profit from deep automation or anyone can implement it and reap their rewards? It depends. I mean, I think if you've got a system like XTRF, it, it depends right. whether you're prog programming or, or configuring. So if you're if, if you can configure a system like Planet or XTRF um, and you know how to do that, uh, you know, you're going to have to have some sort of budget for that. But you know, because it's hard to figure out how to do it yourself, in my experience. Yes, I think smaller customers can definitely benefit from that. Um, now, if you look at a large agency like We Localize or even Bayo, they've got they've got you know teams, large teams of of programmers. Um, it's hard for a small company to compete with that with that kind of um, you know programming capacity. Um, so, yes, I mean, of course, automation is open to everybody. I mean, there are some things that. We automate, like, for example, we'll create an extra email address and we'll give the translator access to that email address. And, and that a lot of the time, that that helps us with what we call spinning plates projects. In other words, work that comes in every day um, where we don't necessarily want to have any touch time from the project managers. And then at the end of the month, you know, we'll do our invoicing. You know, we'll put together the work order for them. That might take 20 minutes. Um, we automate where we can, but you know the the other option, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is that you can you can have project managers in lower cost countries, which is what we do, um, to to do the the manual work that it just isn't worth automating, um, and you know we'll do that for maybe a few months, and then once the project has settled down and we reckon it's worth it, it's worth our while, then we'll we'll start to invest either my time as a programmer or or, or one of the the team in in India. So. Um, it really, it really does does depend on the, you know, on the business case. So, speaking of investments, uh, what type of investments do you need to maintain and keep up with developments that affect automation? I mean, we're not just talking about automation translation, uh, execution, but we are also talking about production. Um, you know, whatever else uh, core functions you, you have in your business. What are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to come up with a number. I was just thinking about the answer to that question. You know, is it 5% of our gross margin or is it, you know, or, you know, some percentage of sales? I mean, certainly we do have a budget for for technology. I think we probably spend about 20,000 euros a year on technology and then maybe 20,000 euros a year for, you know, going to, conf- going to conferences and learning about technology. Uh, we have a few consultants on the on on our you know on our on our books that know let's say trados better than i do uh, even though i i know trados pretty well um i think one of the problems that i think that agencies can have is that they can get too caught up in technology and i'll i'll give right. you an example so uh, going back to the example of of eteams um i had a a, a very uh, good relationship with the former owner of the company. She was, she was very kind with her time. I remember offering her 100 euros an hour to to help me after she'd helped me for too long. And I started to feel guilty. And, and you know, she, she continued to be to be very helpful. And so we had a lot of long conversations about XTRF and, you know, her approach to the business. And to me, it felt that she had gotten a little bit too tied up in the technology side of the business. And wasn't as aware of the fact that the market for Irish was going through a significant dip caused by the financial crisis um, right. or the fact that she, they were getting too much piecemeal work from the MLVs that she was working with, one of which was a company I was working with at the time. Um, and basically their project managers, when you factored in the cost of the project manager, that was eating up all of the margin on the on on the work. So she would have actually been better just to focus just on Irish and um, just you know let go of the project managers that um, that weren't. It wasn't the project manager's fault. It wasn't the customer's fault. It was just the business. Um, or or at least talk to the, talk to the the customers and say, look, we're losing money on your accounts. Can you do something about it? Send us bigger projects, basically. Um, and and she did. It's not to say that she, I think she went from offering fifty languages into English down to three. Um, and and we do. I mean, we we've kind of started to make. I don't want to say the same mistake, but we do provide maybe ten languages into English at the moment. Um, so you have to be careful not to get caught up in in the technology side and forget about the business side. And I'll just one one comment. Um, and this is kind of a little bit of a pitch. Right. One of the one of the um, the things that frustrated me most about that particular time was I, I couldn't help but think back to that five-minute conversation that we'd had in Limerick after Dion Wiggins's presentation and fantasize that she had said, let's have a cup of coffee. And, and then she had been completely open with me about the problems in the business at that time. Because I think if she had said to me, okay, John, I completely trust you, which of course probably wouldn't have happened. But, you know, even though you're a competitor, I, I you know, help basically, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Um, at the time, I had, you know, money on a bank account. Well, not that much, not, not as much as I have now. But, you know, I would have been able to help a little bit financially. I would have, you know, been able to maybe come in as a partner. Um, I, I think I would have been able to say, listen, you just need, it's a bit like I've been watching, um, um, oh, what's the name of that blonde haired cook? Uh, he goes in and fixes restaurants that are, that are, Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. I've been watching all of his yeah. um, episodes. At the moment, I just before COVID, I ended up uh, work. I had two meetings with an agency in Spain, and I, I was going to come in as an investor with a fairly significant amount of cash um, to to try to help this business that had gotten into trouble. Because I 
was so frustrated by the fact that I, don't, I had only come along six months after the liquidation of this other company. So, you know, if there are any agents, any, any translation agency owners out there um, who would like to contact me, who, you know, need investment or even just a, a, an ear, you know, a friendly ear um, to talk about, because not every agency, do, you know, is always doing well, right? Absolutely. Um, yes. So, so I'm at the moment. I think one of the things that I'm hoping to do in the next couple of years is, is to finally actually work as you know, even on a pro bono basis initially, um, to try to find you know a good match for Transpiral, you know, as a partner or even just you know owning two companies from let's say somebody who's retiring, um, where I can you know use my skill as a you know as a as a as a general manager, um, and and. Uh, and and maybe make an investment. So maybe some of your listeners fall into that category. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll encourage them to to get in touch with you. So, uh, what does the future of automation in our industry look like to you, John? Uh, where do you see it headed? And do you still see a place for organizations that decide to do things manually? Um, I mean, I think there will always be a place for manual work at the start of a of a of an engagement with a new customer. Right. Um, I, I don't I don't see you know, I, I've noticed that academics have a tendency to think of this kind of flying car future where everything is completely automated. Um, I, I, I think that one of the problems that we're facing is that people are not encouraging their kids to go and study translation because machine translation is sort of, you know, in German they say in Alamunda, you know, it's, 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 um, it's well known about, you know, amongst the general population. Um, so, so I suppose the slightly unexpected answer to your question is I think there'll always be a place for manual work. Yeah. As we reach the end of this interview, John, I would appreciate if we could share your thoughts and advice in this area for our peer executives, other company owners, as you mentioned, that are on the edge when it comes to automation. What would you tell them to do differently? Well, that's very easy. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I see agencies working all the time with us who have no interest, and I'm, I'm repeating myself because I said this earlier in the podcast, um, they have no interest in what we think of their software. Um, but often we know exactly what needs to be done to improve the software. Um, so I think that particularly, you know, if you're a, uh, an agency that has their own cat tool, for example, you know, create a, most of the cat tool companies, they have a board, which is people who volunteer their time to give feedback. Um, it's it's more than just listening to users or asking people to to post feature requests to a you know a Jira system or a you know an online product management system. It's 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 more about looking at where like what's the big picture problem. For example, the case of the CEO that I met at the Slater conference. Um, I could have solved their problem had they engaged with me. He actually said yes, and then I got sort of lost in meetings with his employees um so it ne never led to anything but the, the point is i could have really helped them simply by showing them how to push the log output of the desktop based cat tool that they were using up to their back end um system so that their support staff could see it so stuff like that really just just engage the users but don't be myopic about who the users are um, your 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 SLV customers, are you sorry? Your SLV suppliers are also users, uh, and your translators are users, and 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 
I think people are always happy to be asked their opinion. Well, what a fascinating conversation, John. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm glad we were able to have uh, this conversation. I want to thank you for your time and look forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you, Sultan. It's been an honor. Our industry has gracefully adopted automation in the form of machine translation, but also in other areas such as productivity management, sales, and much more. Our businesses rely on automation to accomplish their objectives in so many ways. While automation has been around for a very long time, artificial intelligence makes it possible to automate a lot more of our work using past human experience or patterns. This opportunity opens up our industry to a world where repeat and boring work is delegated to computers with massive scale and processing power, while humans do things that are interesting for them such as building relationships, performing meaningful activities such as management and more. We do not need to be scared of automation, it is part of our life. From traffic lights on the road to using Siri on our phones, we have embraced automation as part of our life and we should allow our businesses to leverage this capability as well. That brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with John. If you have any comments or feedback, please share them with me. I promise I read each message. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice and give us a thumbs up or five-star rating. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. 